This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're in a series on 1 Peter. Thank you so much for uh, being with us and those watching via live stream. I know a lot of folks are taking advantage of that with the renewed spread of the virus. So we're thankful for the live stream folks being with us and care about you. Pray for you. Trust in the Lord this morning that he will be with you and encourage you during these weird days. For all those of you who feel like pushing Christmas early today is wrong, I'm with you. I, I'm here to say I disagree. Uh, we have a plurality. The eldership functions as a plurality, so I had no say in that announcement, and I'm totally opposed. And feel like Christmas, we should start talking about Christmas when the church says to talk about Christmas, which is not based on marketing, it's based on Advent, which is next Sunday. So, yes. That's all I'm going to say about that. 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to begin reading in verse 9, read down verses 9 through 12, just for context. And then our text today is verses 18 through 25. These are very relevant verses. This is God's Word, God's holy Word, His inspired Word, His inerrant Word, and it's applicable today. Lord, bless the reading of Your Word. Verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's foundational to our text. Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. 
For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this, you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example. So that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in His mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We're called to show the glory of God, to proclaim his excellencies through humble submission in the midst of unjust suffering. And you see, Peter's given us practical, distinct examples. In verse 13, he talked about being subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, to civil government authorities, to honor the emperor. And now here in verse 18, he's talking about servants. He's talking about slaves. In chapter 3, he'll talk to wives about being subject to their husbands. And all of this is an application of our calling. Once we weren't a people, but now we are a people. And we're a people for His possession, for His glory. As we walk through 1 Peter, one thing is becoming clear, isn't it? Peter thinks, at least, it makes a difference to be a Christian. Your life is different if you're a Christian. Peter thinks that if you choose to follow Christ, if you trust in Him for your salvation, Peter thinks it changes your life. The author of this letter thinks that being born again, God causes you to be born again, it just transforms the way you live in this world and you're like an alien. You're a stranger. You're a peculiar people. And nothing is left untouched. Everything about your life. You, you can't add Christ to your life and not have change that is striking. Your leisure time is affected. Your use of money, your attitude towards money and success, your values, your goals. Everything is changed because Christ makes a difference in your life. There's so many people that say they're Christians, but their, their claim doesn't seem to have any effect on their lives. Well, that just doesn't mesh well, does it, with 1 Peter? That's just not what he has in mind. 
real Christianity makes a life look radically different. Christianity is radical. Makes sense. You're, you're a people for God's possession. So he keeps talking about, I urge you as exiles, as sojourners, as strangers, as aliens. That's how he thinks about you. It's a radical call. And your purpose, you have a purpose in this life. And it's so good to have something to live for. It's so good to think, my life matters. And your goal is to live such a life that people notice and God is glorified. That's what 1 Peter is all about. So a Christianity that doesn't make a difference in our lives doesn't work. It doesn't say anything different. It doesn't proclaim God's glory in this world. And so here Peter is, is looking exactly what it looks like. So it's practical, it's applicable in the lives of God's chosen people. It makes a difference that you've been born again. These people he's writing to, it's a hostile world if you're a believer. We saw how this related to the, the civil government, and he says, honor the emperor. And it was a corrupt emperor at the time of this writing. And now he's talking about a Christian who is the slave of an unbelieving master. Even a crooked and abusive master. Slavery was just a part of life in the first century. In large cities, they estimate that more than half the total population would have been slaves. And there were a lot of these slaves that were part of the church and their, their conditions and their treatment varied, but their lot in life, regardless, was, was a lowly lot. And often very difficult. And Peter is aware of these abuses, and he's giving them instructions that matter to us today. He's given them practical guidance. When they read this, they felt cared for. They thought he knows. He understands. He's bringing them dignity. They may be low in their society. They, they may not be well thought of. But they can do the most important thing a life can do. They can bring glory to God. J.N.D. Kelly was a commentator. He said this. It was the burning conviction of these early Christians that through their fellowship with Christ, they had entered into a relationship of brotherhood with one another in which ordinary social distinctions, real enough in the daily round of life in the world, had lost all meaning. They walked into the church. Once they weren't a people, now they are the people. And they were not so much concerned with natural ethics out in the natural world as with the ethics of the redeemed community. Makes a difference. It doesn't reflect. What we're going to look at today is not politically correct. It's not going to jive with the conventional wisdom 
of the 21st century. Peter doesn't focus on the rights of slaves. He focuses on their responsibilities. We are called to have a humble and submissive attitude even in unreasonable and unjust situations. It's our calling across the board. So let's look at this today. Why should we do this? Verse, verse 21, this is getting at why. For to this you have been called. This is your calling, your purpose, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His footsteps. What have we been called to? We've been called to do good and suffer unjustly. Why? Because He did. And we're following in His footsteps. So, one point we want to take away today. The first point. At times we're called to do good and suffer unjustly. At times, we're called to do good and suffer unjustly. You can't come away from this text without staring that in the face. Christ suffered unjustly. Why? So we might follow in His footsteps. He changed our lives. In these verses, verses 22 through 25, Peter is painting a picture of Christ's suffering. He, Christ, was the model sufferer. He is the perfect example to follow. Our calling includes imitating Him for the glory of God. He is more than an example. And we'll see that. But He is an example. And we are to follow Him. Three times in this text, Peter says that Christ died and that the purpose of His death was to enable us to live differently. He tells us that God's purpose for us as a church is that we live like Christ by the grace of God. God sent His only Son as a sacrifice to make sure that this happens. It changes your life. If you're a Christian, you, you live differently. It's, it's a radical Change To this you have been called. And so Peter is specifically talking to these servants, these household servants, and telling them, you've been called to this. He's giving them dignity. He's letting them know, this is, life isn't out of control. God is in control. This is your calling. It would have comforted them and encouraged them. They lived in these conditions and they would know, wait a minute, this is God's calling. It's, a, it's because of His work in your life. And he goes further than this. He says, the, the enabling power behind this purpose so that you can do this hard thing is that Christ suffered unjustly for you. In your place, on your behalf, so that you can follow in his footsteps. So a second point, we are empowered by grace 
to do good and suffer unjustly. We're empowered, we're enabled, we're equipped by His sacrifice to do what we are called to do. Something happened in the death of Christ for us. And it it guarantees our success. The purpose is that we live like Christ. The power is in His substitutionary death on the cross. And Peter lays this out for us. He died for us to make us like Him. Because Christ suffered for you. You're called to suffer injustice because Jesus did. And it's your calling to follow in His steps. He he did not deserve His sufferings. It's central to the gospel message. It, It was injustice that put Him on the cross. His his obedience through unjust suffering is our example to imitate. It's very countercultural, isn't it? That's just not the way people live in this country we live in. But this is the kind of life we're being called to for the glory of God, and it pleases God. One commentator. Edmund Hybert says, those who have accepted Christ as Savior are challenged to follow His example. It is a challenge, but we are being challenged by God's Word to follow His example. His footsteps lead into the valley of humiliation, even to its lowest and darkest depths, don't they? Yes, they do, to the cross. But... They also surely and confidently lead through the valley, ending at the throne of glory. That's what we believe. And there's there's injustice in our society. There's injustice. I was trying to think of an example, and I just... Had to rack my brain. I came up with cornucopia. There was injustice at cornucopia. You may not even be aware of this, but we did fireworks for cornucopia. We had a great desire to bless the community. We wanted to bless the church. We wanted to, you know, celebrate. It's it's 2020. It's been a down year. Let's party like it's over. Like 2021 is going to be better. And that our hope was everybody would celebrate. And many told me it was just like that. One guy told me, yeah, he felt like everything's going to be okay, man. There's fireworks. We're having a party. Somebody told me it's the best event in 22 years at CCK. But on social media, we got hammered. There's, there's a social media platform called Nextdoor. And... I don't know anything about it, but I found out, wow, people were not happy. We were having fireworks, and they said things. Somebody sent me the things so I could just read down through it. I was just thanking God I'm not on social media. I mean, I was depressed for days. No, I wasn't. 
you know, people say, you know, it's 8.30 p.m. on a Sunday night and it's still going on. That is not true. We stopped at 8.05. One guy said, I thought maybe a fireworks store blew up. Man, that's a lot of fireworks. My poor senior puppy was shaken up. I have an indoor-outdoor cat and she's scared. Doesn't a church know fireworks are illegal? Yeah, you see, that's the natural desire we gotta, we got to fight against. Because <laughs> my initial response was, wait till next year, because I'm blowing this hill up. <laughs> but that's not the spirit of the text. <laughs> what was cool was, People that aren't members of the church's neighbors started defending us. Wait a minute, they, they didn't go to 8.30. What happened was we apparently inspired other fireworks people all over the city. And then we got blamed for it. I would say that innocent people are put on trial and condemned unjustly on social media every day. And people say things that are not true. And as I read down all this interaction, even the, the people that were defending us were lying. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute, that's not true. <laughs> oh, well, go ahead, say it, you know. <laughs> Good for you. It's okay to lie, it's in my defense, you know. The point is, is that our impulse is to defend ourselves. And it's not that we can never defend ourselves, because I think there is a biblical basis for, at times, for the glory of God to defend yourself. The point of this text is we're called to suffer unjustly with humility and to submit to it because we're mindful of God. Verses 22 and 23 Peter gets into the, the reason for this is our glorious Savior and His example. He's quoting Isaiah 53 repeatedly. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten. Peter's quoting Isaiah 53, Jesus fulfilled the prophecy. He's the suffering servant. And when he was reviled, when he was, when he was suffering unjustly, he humbly submitted to it. And he's our example. He committed no sin. So he was killed even though he was an innocent man. And, and not once did he commit an act of sin. And what's so powerful is the man writing this was an eyewitness of Jesus' life. He is giving you a testimony. He did not sin. I was there. I was an eyewitness. He knew that Jesus had been tempted by Satan more than any man who ever lived or ever would live. He had a close relationship. He was one of his closest friends. He said he never sinned, not one time. You can't ignore this. 
We have a high priest. Hebrew, the author of Hebrews says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so Peter's an eyewitness. He's confirming what the author of Hebrews says. He was tempted beyond measure. Never one time sinned. And, and this suffering, this special, unique suffering of a sinless man is central to the gospel. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, on the cross, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was our substitute. Our sins were counted as his. The sinless man died on the cross. Our sins, this is the good news. If you trust in this, your sins are forgiven because the wrath of God was satisfied by his sacrifice on the cross. That's the good news. And we are counted righteous. So his righteous life is counted as ours. God is just, and he is the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. You're declared righteous. It's, his sufferings were unique. His conduct was sinless. And it's confirmed by those who lived with him. No deceit was found in his mouth. He, he never sinned with his mouth, his James says, we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. God the Son incarnate, Jesus was the perfect man. He never sinned with his mouth. He was never guilty of lying. He was never deceitful. He was never dishonest and this was very applicable to these slaves because the only way they could defend themselves was by lying and they were known for being deceptive it was the sole means they had so the fact that there was never a lie found in his mouth was relevant to them Peter reminds these slaves that they should look to Christ and strive to copy his innocence, to imitate his innocence and his truth. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he didn't revile. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. His enemies said he was possessed by the devil. They said he was a demoniac. They called him a glutton, a wine-bibber. A blasphemer. They said he was a liar who was just deceiving people. He was struck in the face. He was crowned with thorns. He was beaten with reeds. He never retaliated. He didn't come back with a bigger fireworks show. Mistreated slaves did retaliate in the first century. We know that. An early Christian 
history records that at times believers would retaliate. But he never did. Even the Apostle Paul did. You may remember in the book of Acts when he said to the high priest after the high priest had ordered him to be struck, he said, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Even the Apostle Paul retaliated. It's our natural, sinful desire that we have to put to death if we want to be innocent. If we want to follow in His footsteps. That's what we're called to do. And it's only by the grace of God. It's only by the power of the gospel that we can be transformed like that. He was the suffering servant. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He opened not his mouth. He opened not his mouth. It's Peter's eyewitness testimony. Didn't threaten. Why not? Verse 23. He continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. That's why he responded the way he did. It's the example we should follow. This is how to advise. How do you do this? Jesus did this repeatedly. He experienced injustice after injustice after injustice. He didn't retaliate because he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He will settle the account and he lets him settle the account instead of settling in himself. He trusted God so he was able to endure unjust suffering with humility, believing that God would bring justice. Peter says in chapter 4, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We're supposed to do the exact same thing. By the grace of God, Peter is calling suffering believers to follow Christ. He's not saying justice doesn't matter. He's encouraging his readers to trust God. He's the final judge. And these cruel masters, he will bring to account. That's his job and not your job. William Wilberforce devoted 20 years of his life in Parliament in Great Britain to the abolition of English slave trading. And by the grace of God, England was liberated. John Piper writes this. He says, The Lord looked down with delight on February 22, 1807, when the House of Commons passed the decisive bill. God delighted most in the living power of holiness in the life of Wilberforce and Henry Thornton as they embraced one another and frolicked in the snow like schoolboys outside the chamber. Along the way, as they had been working towards this, and they'd had defeat after defeat for 20 years, John Wesley wrote to Wilberforce to strengthen his hand in God. And he said, unless God has raised you up for this very thing, 
you'll be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? No. Oh, be not weary in well-doing. My prayer, John Piper says, is that the truth of God's pleasure in public justice will inspire many in our day to take up the mantle of William Wilberforce and wear it into the battle against the manifold injustices of our day. The point Peter is making is not that injustice is okay. We do not support injustice. We battle it. Justice matters. Peter isn't teaching something otherwise. What he is saying is that enduring injustice humbly magnifies the grace of God. Proclaims his excellencies. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. Healed of sin. This is a spiritual sickness that he's talking about, obviously in context. He's not talking about physical healing. He's talking about the healing of your soul. You'd left your Savior. You were away from your shepherd. And Jesus died on the cross. Peter calls it a tree because he's thinking back to Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy talked about when, when a man hangs on a tree, it's a curse. And Jesus hung on the cross and he took the curse of God for our sins so that we might only have the blessings of the covenant. It's a long story and I don't have time to get into it, but Jesus died on that cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Be a peculiar people. Be different. Be able to suffer unjustly. To humbly submit. Why? Because we're mindful of God and it's very striking. Wouldn't it be striking in our culture if somebody was willing to suffer injustice, mindful of God for His glory? Yes. We do it because by His wounds we've been healed. The design of the cross is to liberate us from the power of sin so we can do something that is so peculiar like that. Go against this inner desire we have to retaliate. It's, it's a miracle of God's grace and it brings Him glory when we do it. Robert Mounts, commentator, said it's it's most extraordinary when an innocent person accepts unjust suffering with patience and equanimity, with self-control, calmly. But then Christians are expected to be extraordinary people. Isn't that good? It's extraordinary when an innocent person accepts unjust suffering with patience, equanimity. But then Christians are expected to be extraordinary people. It's a miracle of God's grace. 
by the grace of God, through the power of the Spirit, a believer can be different. So Peter says in verse 18, to these household slaves, servants, it's very clear the word used, he's referring to these particular people. They were slaves in households. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. These are household slaves. They would have been very closely related to their masters. And so if their master had a bad temper, if they were a wicked, cruel master, they would be much more susceptible to abuse. Be subject to your masters with all respect. This is their duty. This is an imperative. This is a command. Same thing he said, verse 13, he's talking about honoring the emperor who was a corrupt, cruel emperor. Honor, be subject to the emperor. Now he's saying to these household slaves, it's very clear, verse 13, God instituted human government. God did not institute slavery. Man instituted slavery. Nevertheless, Peter says, this is your duty. Follow in his steps. Be subject to your masters with all respect. Respect. And they should do it mindful of God. Verse 19. It's a gracious thing when that happens. He re repeats that phrase twice. It's a gracious thing. It's a product of the gospel. It's the power of the cross in your life when you do this. When mindful of God... Because you want to proclaim His excellencies. Because you want to glorify Him. You want to magnify His grace. You want to tell the world what God has done for you. Be subject to your masters with all respect. It's a gracious thing when that happens. Enduring sorrow while suffering unjustly, it pleases the Lord. It gets nobody's respect in the world. Nobody's going to commend you in the world. Nobody's going to say that's a good thing. They're going to say you're crazy. You should retaliate. They're going to call you names. But who cares? This is God's evaluation. And God says, well done, good and faithful servant. He likes this. Point number three, we proclaim the Lord's excellencies when we do good and we suffer unjustly. Folks, we have a very different worldview than the world around us. We think differently because this word speaks to us. This is God's word. We just don't think like the world. We, we are affected by what Peter is saying. And they will never understand us until they understand we live like this because we're mindful of God. 
because we have a relationship with God, and we want to please God, and we do things different, and it's odd to you, and you'll never understand until you understand we do it for His glory. It's for the Lord's sake. What credit is it, Peter says, verse 20, if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure it? There's no credit in that. But if when you do good, and suffer, then you suffer, and you endure. And when he says, and you're beaten for it, these slaves understood. That, that meant, Peter knows, we get beaten. He's speaking directly into their situations. Can you imagine? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, the hands of an evil, cruel, wicked master, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Because you're doing it, you're entrusting your soul to a faithful creator. That's why you're doing it. And you believe that one day, that wicked, cruel master, God will deal with him. That's not your role. So I'm not going to retaliate. I'm going to trust the Lord because I'm following in the steps of my Savior. And when you do it, God is pleased. And He is glorified. And that's why we exist. That's our purpose. According to God's Word. It's commendable to God. We are called at times to show God's glory by humbly submitting to unjust suffering. That's the word of the Lord. And it's a call to us today. It's a call to us to live a different life. Christianity should lead to a radically different life, according to Peter. The good news is, Jesus died on a cross, not just to forgive us our sins, but to transform us by grace. So this is all empowered and enabled by the cross. This is the fruit of the cross. This is where the cross takes us. This is where Jesus' life, death, and resurrection takes us. This is why He's given us the Spirit. And so we don't live today intimidated by this calling we, we live in hopes that we will be counted worthy to suffer for His glory alone. Amen? Lord, thank You today for Your Word. I pray, Father, that You would help us be a church filled with radical Christians that live different lives for Your glory. We live in a culture that is dark, is desperate, is grasping, trying to find answers, and I pray that our lives would be testimonies to the truth of the gospel. I pray that our lives, I pray that our church, our congregation would draw people to you. I pray that we would be a light in the midst of darkness for your glory alone, Lord. We need your help today and pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen message given by Bill Kittrell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, 
visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.